Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And Mike, I think there's a Spanish breeze blowing through here today. Wasn't there a Brazilian breeze just last week? What's going on here? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, yeah, we got a lot of um, Spanish speaking. There's no real vocals on any of these. Uh, well, one or two of them have a yeah. vocal, but um, yeah, this, it's all like Spanish language tinged. I, I'm a great believer that um, music comes from language. So I think mm-hmm. that uh, a lot of like your sense of language gets into the music that you write. You know, say if you're from a certain place, for example. I, I think that's it really depends on what what time in history you're coming from and what the style is, I guess. But um, I believe there's that. a lot of truth to yeah. that. Yeah. And I often say that uh, as a trumpet player, Latin players have different articulation uh, right. because they use their tongues differently uh, for right. you know speaking language. So uh, they can do it's some diff- so technique different kind of, of uh, techniques yeah, there too. They get a different sound. That's pretty cool. Anyway, we've got uh, some old world and uh, new world, a little Spanish and a little Portuguese influence uh, all mixed up with lots of interesting music tonight. You know, the old world's got a lot of new music coming out of it. That's pretty cool. An interesting little journey here. Well, I introduced Mike over there on that mic. I'm Russ over That's here. That's Russ. Yeah, I should, have, I should have returned the uh, comment there like we do here in Japan when we pour each other's drinks. And uh, I guess I was thinking of only of myself as usual. <laughs> <laughs> no crime in that. Let me just say, that is Russ over there. Thank you very much. Yeah, by the way, we should, you should give a shout out to the... Uh, the, the entire like uh, population of Greece who have written to us this week. <laughs> What's That's going right. on over there? Yeah. Thankfully, all of the uh, Greek jazz musicians have shared our podcast and uh, seems to have made the rounds on Facebook. So we've got a lot of downloads from Greece. Uh, so thanks to uh, Spiral Trio for uh, sharing our little discussion of their recording and uh, made it through the community. So we appreciate that. Yeah, I really appreciate that myself. It was really, it was really nice to read all those uh yeah, that you know, just you can almost feel the enthusiasm coming off the uh, the print. It was really nice. Yeah, it's very nice. And now we know uh, what to listen for, and uh, learned a little bit about the Athens jazz scene. So we'll right keep looking there for new releases, and it's kind of exciting. I'll do what I can in classical music, but it's uh, there, are, there isn't that much <laughs> that lot, gets yeah. released over here. Right. So and they you got to kind of snatch them up when they show up. So. Yeah. And so if we've got any new listeners out there this week, uh, we usually go through six releases, usually three classical and three jazz, sometimes uh, things that don't fit into categories so neatly, a little world music, uh, something a little funkier. But for all the music that we're going to talk about tonight, in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music if you want to check them out on streaming. Or if you'd like to get them all in one place, uh, there's also the full episode playlist that is on Deezer a preferred streaming platform, and you can get everything uh, in one long list every week. And I put that up soon for the next week after we get the episode up, so you can listen to it before the episode if you like. I can also listen to the podcast there on Deezer if you like to. They have podcasts now. Uh, Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. And if you can't see the full description or those links on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, because we're on pretty much everything now, uh, you can always come over to our host site, which is podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, and all the links and everything is easy to follow for all of our past episodes, too. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. And if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, 
It helps us get more listeners, which makes us happy. And you can also find us at Facebook too. Uh, leave a message or comment there. I'm putting up a lot more new recordings and other interesting little things during the week. Yeah, Russ is doing that. I got to start doing that. I'll have more free time soon, so I'll be yeah, doing you that had some a lot more. Interesting myself, classical you know. stuff last week. Yeah, I did have that this weekend. Yeah. I should have put these up because they were, these were pretty interesting recordings. They're a little um, unusual, actually. Yeah. Otherwise, if you want to get in contact with us uh, directly by email, adult music podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Get in touch. We'll, we'll be sure to reply. Yeah. All right. So I guess we're uh, are we ready to go. We're going to take a trip to um, Iberia and uh, the Americas too. The uh, you know Central and South America, to be precise. We uh, I guess we like those uh, those warmer climes at this time of year. You know, we're hmm. in Greece one week and then we we're in Brazil another week. Although I wasn't really, you know, with the, with the music. And now we're all um, Spain, Portugal, and uh, various countries in Latin America. Yeah, in these assorted. Uh, programs that we've got here all right well it, and uh I, just, I was just thinking this week um jill biden you know the president of the united states wife gave a speech i think she was in texas when she gave it but she she said that uh latin people are as diverse as you know as breakfast tacos or something like that <laughs> which I thought was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And uh, she rightly got pushed back for that. What she should have said, and what we're pretty much going to say on this episode, because we are, of course, more sensible and we write our own speeches, <laughs> is that uh, Latin people, or just you know, in general, are as diverse as the music you're going to hear on this pod, or that we're going to talk about on this podcast tonight, and that you're going to hear if you uh, click the links that we include on this um, this program, uh, this there was some pretty interesting music here. A lot of uh, yeah. composers you probably haven't heard of before. Uh, there are some of them I haven't I hadn't heard of before. Like um, the first one we're going to mention on this um, first album here. Let's start in Europe. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So this first album is called Iberian Impressions. Kind of sounds like a jazz title, doesn't it? But yeah. it's not. Don't be fooled. It's a classical album. <laughs> Uh, the composer, I'm sorry, the pianist. It's a, it's um, Spanish and Portuguese piano works, um, all from Europe in this particular album. And the uh, pianist is Paulo Oliveira. And this is on the Odra Deck Records label, a label I've never heard of before, but I'm starting to notice some releases uh, from them on the sites that I look at. Yes. I think the Spiral Trio was on uh, Odra Deck. Oh, were they? Yeah. Yes, huh. They do jazz too. I'll have to look look into that a yeah. little bit more. I think I seem to recall that that was the case. Wow. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, Iberian impressions. Let's get uh, let's be impressed with Iberia. You ready? The first work on this album is by a composer I hadn't heard of before, Armando Jose Fernandez. He's Portuguese and he lived uh, from 1906 to 1983. So uh, a 20th century composer. Now, part of the reason you probably haven't heard of unless you're Portuguese I guess that you haven't heard of these composers is because they wrote you know mostly tonal idiom uh, in a time where atonalism 12 tone yeah. music dodecaphonic music just became the required style of writing in art mm. music while that was happening people were still writing in the tonal romantic style but uh, that music wasn't being played um, or at least was only being played you know by uh, the composer's friends or in places their hometown or whatever so th the nice thing about having recordings and uh being alive now is that we're finally getting to hear a lot of this music because it's just sort of you know musicians want to discover new 
music and yeah. uh it's always been there and some of it's really great all right let me tell you a little bit about armando jose fernandez he spent most of his life in lisbon in portugal except for a spell in paris where he studied with giants really like nadia boulanger who pretty much um educated everyone who was great in the 20th century right up to astro piazzola one of her last uh, students Ooh. um yeah paul Ducat, uh jean roger paul Ducat, who wrote uh, the sorcerer's apprentice the sorcerer's apprentice which uh many listeners will remember as the uh, piece that uh was featured in the movie fantasia with mm. mickey mouse as the sorcerer's apprentice you know kind of Right. Uh, bringing the brooms to life to do his cleaning for him. Um, that, by the way, if you if you know this that piece from uh, the movie, you should probably listen to the uh, the actual version because they manipulated it a bit it a bit for the movie so that oh, okay. <laughs> the animation would fit. They sort of changed it. Mm. Okay. Okay. She stu- he studied with uh, Jean Roger Ducasse and Alfred Cortot, one of the great pianists of the 20th century. Uh, very influential influential on a lot of pianists, but especially. For the French piano style of the 20th century. Okay, uh, Jose uh, Fernandez's music is introspective. He's thought of as neoclassical. I think that's probably right. Mm. Um, this piece is called Sonatina, written in 1941. That year should uh, send up um, sort of um, so, some flags there because that was the war year. Okay, so Europe was at war at this time. Right. It's a, it's actually a pretty nice piece, really. It doesn't really sound troubled uh, <laughs> or hmm. anything like that. Um, it opens with uh, radiant chords, um, and it's kind of a, an impressionistic piece. Um, the first thing I noticed about this is it wasn't the piece itself, but the uh, recording. I think it draws attention to itself. The uh, piano sound is very, very dry. Okay, it's like you're, like you're wandering in the desert there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You might want to have a glass of water with you when you listen to this. Uh, like it's recorded in his bedroom on a small piano or something. Like mm. just, I don't know. It's in a room that just gets no room sound at all. I don't know how they recorded this. Um, but that said, um, it comes up detailed, which is nice. You're just not getting this really nice dimensional piano sound. Um, Oliveira, though, shapes the piece very well. He's, he's uh, He has a genuine feeling for it and all the rest of the music on this album. So it's recommended for that uh we get a clear sense of the work's form um the notes say it's impressionistic i really wouldn't call this impressionistic in any like pastel type of way it's got i guess it's impressionistic in the sense that it's got like a spanish flavor to it you know it's got those like those eighth note descending endings to phrasing that we're so familiar with like in spanish music you know that kind of thing Mm. um and it's easy on the ear, very appealing. Uh, Oliveira has a fluid technique, and balance of the different voices is clearly audible, especially in this very dry acoustic. It's a short movement. Of course, it's called Sonatina, so it's a small sonata. The second movement is Tempo di Folia. A folia is, um, refers to La Folia, which is um, a chord progression that was used. It's, it's said to be ancient. I don't really, I should have researched this a little bit more, but it was used a lot in Baroque music. You see it pop up in a lot of uh, Baroque works. And it's it's a chord progression that um, people solo over. It's apparently also a melody, but in the Baroque music, composers will use the chord progression to kind of write their own sort of material over. And that's what happens here, I think. Um, 
it's been used in composition since the Middle Ages, so it's pretty old. Um, this theme here is played and repeated, but reharmonized in the bass and extended the second time. Here, you're hearing more, and you're not really hearing a Baroque style, which is when I think fully, I think the Baroque era, because they used it a lot. But here, it's very romantic sounding, like the 19th century, um, which is interesting if you've heard a lot of uh, Baroque takes on it. This actually sounds like uh, pretty complex to what I've heard of the folia in the Baroque music. And it ends inconclusively, I guess, just on the last chord and the melody doesn't end or something. Third movement, Allegro non troppo. This is um, an intricate and tonally ambiguous movement. And it's also pretty charming. Uh, the notes say, spiky and dense, ending with soft subtlety. It's got sort of a contrapuntal opening with uh, angular melodic ideas. When I say that, what I mean is it's not making this curvy song-like melody. It's mm. kind of more like figures, uh, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Um, the main melodic line moves between the various voices, and it's a very brief movement, a minute and 37 seconds. I felt like this piece was over as soon as it started. <laughs> you know? yeah. I was kind of like, oh, blink and you'll miss it. It was pretty appealing, though, but it was kind of, you kind of wanted it to be a little more filled out, I think. Um, it's hard to... it. it it's hard to give an impression of what it was like just because it was so short. It's appealing, easy to listen to. It seems pretty light. And uh, given its title, there's nothing wrong with that. Hmm. Okay, now we get onto uh, one of the giants of the uh, late Romantic, early Modernist era, Isaac Albaniz. Um, he's, he was Spanish, and he's most famous for his uh, gigantic uh, set of piano works, uh, I Iberia. Uh, which which uh, there's a new recording of. We might have to do one day. Um, that's two hours long, though. This is um, a shorter set of uh, sort of pieces that are characteristic of the Spanish music he was hearing around him called España, written in 1890, before Iberia, his, his magnum opus. These are a little shorter and a little more modest. Um, it's there. How many of these are there? Let's see. There are six of them. Uh, the first one is a preludio, which has a very Spanish feel. Now, I've heard um, Iberia many times, so I was sort of expecting that. This isn't as richly orchestrated as that is. Orchestrated meaning like there's not a, there aren't as many voices going on the piano. Um, it's odd to hear this in this very dry acoustic, because um, I'm just used to hearing it in other ways. Um, but the familiar har harmonies soon take one's ear off of the overall sound of the piano. There's pedal used, and you can tell when it's being used, but the individual notes don't blur at all because the, <laughs> the acoustic is so dry. As in the first work, Oliveira's playing is fluent and excellent. The Spanish feeling comes across, and this is always good. This is why you often want a Spanish pianist in Spanish music because they get that feel uh, really in a genuine way. It just sounds natural. Um, mm -hmm. Alicia de la Rocha was um, a, a pianist who was fantastic at this. And in fact, she's recorded this work and uh, I have her her performance of it in my head from long ago. So like, really nothing's going to compare to that. It's one of those definitive performances that no one's going to overtake, as is her recording of Iberia. But I keep listening to these newer ones just to find new details that I might have missed. Um, so that's a fairly brief preludio. The second movement is a tango, and uh, say more sunny than sultry. I would agree. This is a pretty sunny work. It almost seems like a barcarolle, just with the way the uh, arpeggios and the bass sort of roll. Um, but uh, Oliveira plays with a light touch and a light Spanish character. Um, yeah, it sounds 
we we associate the tango with Argentina, but you know this sounds very Spanish to me. Mm. I guess it originated in Spain. I don't really know much about that either. Third movement, Malagueña. This is an and a type of Andalusian flamenco music, and it's a dance. Oliveira gets the dance quality across. Did I say that right? My New York accent. Dance. <laughs> sounds good to me. <laughs> All right. It's a very light step. I kind of think of Malagueña as being more heavier than this. He's It's very light here, though, mm-hmm. um, which uh, brings me to Oliveira's style of playing. He um, plays all of these pieces very lightly. He's got a very light touch. It's sort of an aristocratic sort of style. You know, like he's not going to get into any of these vulgar emotions or anything like that. You know, it's very classical, very clean. Mm. Um, if you want to be a little mean, you could say antiseptic. But I would say it's more geared towards the form, you know. Mm. And um, he, he's more classical than anything, than romantic, I think, even though he does put the romantic elements across, just not with any of this gushing emotion. So that's what you're going to get. You're going to get something a little more aristocratic sounding on this album um yeah some pianists i wrote here would use a heavier touch to get a more full-blooded quality but Oliveira doesn't do that um he's more intellect than emotion i said that shouldn't put people off though you know sometimes you just lack the vocabulary for this it doesn't mean it doesn't have emotion it does Mm. um it's just light and more focused on the uh the, the the form i would say um Let's see. The Spanish character is there, but it's like faded color in a photograph. You kind of feel like if some, you know, really passionate pianist really got this, you'd be in full color more. Okay. Um, so yeah, it feels kind of, again, not in any bad way. Again, we think of faded color as being maybe a bad thing, but it's just, you just feel like there's more of there's, there's something lacking in that dimension there's certainly nothing lacking in the uh the actual melodic playing and the uh recognition of the form and putting the work across all right before i hope people are getting a good impression of this because that's what <laughs> i want to give all right uh, serenata fourth movement which means an evening song by the way a little quiz out there does anyone know um a, a serenata would be a an evening song does anyone know what a morning song would be write to us and we'll tell you the answer next week (laughs) okay because there were songs that you would wake up your honey with by standing under her window with your mandolin as people threw flower pots at you (laughs) for waking them up too anyway this serenade is not a typical serenade but its animated undercurrent has a suggestive seductive quality that would surely win over its intended audience um, to me, though, it didn't sound... That's what the booklet notes say. To me, it didn't sound much like a serenade. It sounds a little too playful for that. I always think of a serenade as wooing women under their window kind of thing, which was sort of a Latin European tradition at one time. Um, <laughs> have you tried that yourself? Uh, I have not, but oh. apparently it uh, continued in Napoli, in Naples, Italy, up until the uh, early 20th century. Could be the missing element, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are a lot of quicksilver changes in the character that Oliveira does really well to put across. You you really hear his kind of um, 
his response to the different characters, the fleeting characters that this piece goes through. Um, he plays with a light touch throughout. And again, like in the previous movements too, you don't get a sense of him digging to the bottom of the key. He's very light. He's got a very light touch. The fifth uh, movement, Capriccio Catalan. Um, this is, starts out as a simple uh, lullaby type theme. And it sort of passes like a rondo, like a rondo, I should say, with the lullaby as the rondo theme. The capriccio parts, a capriccio is sort of like a playfulness or a joke. So if you get a pizza that's a capricciosa, it means like the, the guy just went, hey, hey, just put anything you wanted on there, basically. <laughs> it's just capricious. It's just like a spur of the moment sort of a mood that you give, you know, rise to. That's what it, that's what it means. Um so uh, the Capriccio parts are the contrasting episodes between the main theme. So basically what he feels at the moment he's written down, I guess. And they're a little more lively than the lullaby. It's a pretty straightforward performance. <laughs> when I think of a Capriccio's a, like pizza, I just think of somebody like the other guy saying, oh, it's a Capriccio's. <laughs> he's just throwing ingredients hey, all over the place. You know, whatever lands on the, yeah, whatever yeah. lands on the pizza is what you get, you know. All right, the sixth movement, Zico's uh, dance rhythm. It lightly skips along, uh, almost like a Spanish-sounding Baroque piece here. Oliveira has a light touch in all of his playing so far, as I've mentioned before, and the form is put across well with Oliveira making sure we hear all the cadences. And um, I wrote this whole thing about how, you know, I've got Alicia De La Rocha on my, um, in my mind here, but uh, this is a very different performance that she put across. He's very, Oliveira is very classical in his interpretations. Now, it's nice that we heard this familiar piece because now we understand a bit about Oliveira's approach and we're going to hear all this unfamiliar music now and we know he's going to go for the more classical sound. All right, the next composer, we have three pieces by Pedro Blanco. He was born in Leon in Spain and studied piano in Madrid, but his career took him to Porto in uh, Portugal. So he's kind of bridges the, uh, the two countries mm. here. Um, he lived in uh, Porto, um, from 1903 until his death in 1919. What happened in 1919? Well, uh, he died in the post-World War One flu pandemic. Oh. So he's got something in common with us, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Not that he died, but he lived through a pandemic. Well, he didn't live through it. That's uh, the, right. the tragedy. Anyway, anyway, the first work here is called uh, Castilla, Opus 16, and it's a multi-movement work. We hear only the second movement, Nana Leonesa. Um, this starts out with a rippling piano figuration, and uh, it figures throughout this piece. Uh, the piece is constructed with chords outlining a rather churchy-sounding theme between the dancing figuration. Oliveira actually puts out a bit more passion than previously in this track. Uh, listen, for example, from the two-minute mark on. Um, the piece builds towards cadences that it doesn't reach. Instead, the contrasting section will butt in and take over. It's got an interesting ending where the middle pedal is held down so that individual notes will ring after Oliveira lets go of the chords. You don't hear that middle pedal used very often. No. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's a shame. It's kind of a nice effect. Um, anyway... On to the next piece, Pedro Blanco again. The Romantique. This is French. Opus 6, the fifth movement is uh, Berceuse, which means lullaby. This has a pretty right-hand figuration. Um, yeah, this is a multi-movement work too, but we're only hearing one movement of it. The fifth movement. 
Um, it's got some pretty right-hand figuration. It's uh, an arpeggiated set of thirds, while the theme is played in the left hand. Um, a new theme, mainly solo, begins after about a minute. And this section leads to a very sensitive cadence around a minute and 40 seconds, then continues on in its spacious, intimately whispering vein. The form is ternary from, uh, that means A-B-A, so you're going to hear a repeat of the opening section at the end. From 2 minutes and 57 seconds on, we go back to the opening A section. It's a very pretty work. Do you think your child would fall asleep um, listening to this? Were you to have a child? I'm not so sure. It's nice, mm, I guess. It's light and gentle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I always kind of think about that. But uh, the next one will wake him up. to a bear Seuss. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Pedro Blanco again. This is from his uh, set of works called uh, Galanias, Opus 10. This is the third piece called Verbena. It's a, it's, which is an open air fair or festivity. And we get that sense from the, the writing here. It's a dancey piece. Uh, in four-four, with two beats played as triplets and two, and two as pairs of eighths to get the Spanish feel across. That's that's at least how I interpreted it. I didn't mm. see a score. Um, by the end of the first minute, the figuration gets pretty dense, and Oliveira expertly separates the various melodies via levels of volume with his hands. This really does show you who the pros are. People, you know, pianists who can do this. There's quite a bit of passion in this piece, and you can tell Oliveira is really feeling it. He seems to have a special affinity for Blanco's music. All three of these works come across mm -hmm. very well. Um, as always, he keeps the formal line of the composition in sight and guides us unerringly, unerringly to the end, only this time with some virtuosic flourishes. I, the Blanco works are the most fully realized on this album mm -hmm. so far. Next, a composer that... Uh, let me just say something about him. Jose Viana da Mota, he's Portuguese, lived from 1868 to 1948. So he's the end of the Romantic and really most of his career, I guess, is in the modernist um, um, era. This is called uh, Three, or uh, how do you say? Tres. Cenas uh, Portuguesas. I don't know how to say this in Portuguese. Opus 9. From 1904. Now, I know Viana da Mota's music from only one album that um, Hyperion put out. He's He features in their massive um, uh, romantic piano concerto series, which is now up to its 84th CD. Wow. <laughs> they started in the 90s. And um, there's there's one disc in that um, set in that series uh, played by Arthur Pizarro, the great uh, Spanish pianist. Um, he, and he played the Jose Viana de Mota um, piano concertos. And uh, hearing this piece made me go back to that. I'll talk about that in a minute. But let me get to this piece first. So it's called um, <laughs> Tres Cenas Portuguesas. Three Cenas Portuguesas. I don't know how to say that in Portuguese. Uh, Viana de Mota actually had some pretty impressive teachers too. He studied with Hans von Bülow and taught Sequera Costa, who was the teacher of pa Paolo Oliveira, the pianist we're hearing on this album. So he's got a, a two-generation connection to uh, Viana de Mota. Um, Viana de Mota, incidentally, was one of Franz Liszt's last students. Hmm. Um, yeah, so and by the way, anyone who played the piano and was alive in Europe 
during List's lifetime studied with List. He basically just got in a big room and taught everybody. He didn't have private <laughs> students. So when they say that, keep that in mind. Okay, so the three of these. The first one is Cantiga d'Amor, which is a love song. Uh, this is mostly uh, graceful and coy, according to the notes. Coy isn't really a word that I use much. <laughs> <laughs> But gives way to something more complex and ardent. A uh, very strong Spanish feel to this in both melody and rhythm. Um, the playing has a, or the piece actually has a music box quality, giving, given Oliveira's sound and the style of playing here. So it's mechanical in a light, appealing way, sort of um, nostalgic, I guess. Um, he's very idiomatic in this piece, is Oliveira, the pianist. Clearly, the composer is someone he holds in high esteem. Uh, there's a nice change to the minor for the darker, heavier middle section, which still maintains that Iberian feel. The second movement is called Chula, and this is a percussive Portuguese folk dance dating back at least to the 18th century. Um, yeah, the folk dance melody and rhythm characterize the entire piece. The bass rhythm in open fifths, which always kind of suggests the countryside because it has that bagpipe kind of feeling to it. It's an immediately appealing piece, and Oliveros captures the feeling via what is obviously a deep understanding of the idiom. And uh, the third movement, Valsa Capricciosa, Capricious Waltz. Hey, oh! <laughs> the Capricciosa is the key word here. It's a waltz with a lot of odd pauses and melodic figures falling over the waltz rhythm like so much extra frosting on a cake. There are a few unexpected key changes during some of the figurations, so that's capricious sort of behavior or writing as well. Uh, it's an entertaining piece, again, well put across. These pieces, I really liked them, and it mm -hmm. made me want to go back to the uh, the piano concertos on Hyperion that Artur Pizarro had um, recorded, and um, so I listened to those, and they were nothing like these. They're very romantic, uh, mm -hmm. very straightforward. There's really no kind of... Portuguese or Spanish character to them at all. They're really very just romantic mm. sounding without any real national feeling to them. So very different than this. Anyway, check them out if you're interested. That's the second place to go. Okay, tracks 16 to 18, Xavier Monsalvage, Spanish, lived in 1912 to 2002. He was actually alive the first time I heard his music, which is kind of interesting for me. This is another sonatine, and uh, so we begin and end this album with a sonatine. This is the last work on the album. This one's called Sonatine pour Yvette. There were apparently a lot of um, Yvettes in uh, Spain because um, Albanese had an Yvette, too, that he wrote a piece for. Hmm. I personally don't know anyone named Yvette, but maybe they're in my future. Who knows? Okay, so Mont Sauvage was a Catalan composer. And he sought to free himself from regional accents and Andalusian flavors. He's trying to get away from what Albanese set up. He was interested in 12-tone techniques and Wagner. But this gave way to the influence of Olivier Messiaen and Georges Auric, the both French um, composers. Um, also, well, Messiaen's music is pretty difficult. Auric is, wrote a lot of film music, actually, in the early days of mm. film. Uh, he was also drawn to Cuban music. Sonatine for Yvette blends diatonic melodies that evoke nursery rhymes or children's games with sliding chromatic triads in the left hand and propulsive syncopation. The result is vividly colorful in a way that reveals Messian's influence 
in particular. Well, maybe. Not certainly not his harmony. Um, I'm guessing Yvette is a is a child. Anyway, first movement, Vivo Espiritoso. This starts out with a cascading figure. It descends and stops, and a more traditional theme is laid out. Uh, the cascading material, uh, which is a, kind of a structural element in the piece, it kind of links a lot of um, uh, the music you're going to hear together. It comes back and brings momentum to a halt with a gradual pause. The movement is a bit whimsical with some unexpected interjections. We get a cadence and a new section at a minute and 40 seconds, and the movement briefly changes character for about a quarter of a minute just before the three-minute mark. We don't get a full recapitulation, but here the familiar cascading figures and theme at the end. Second movement, Moderato Molto. This is very dreamlike and starts with a descending figure followed by chords. The repeating ostinato chords are more haunting than dreamlike to me, uh, coming across like church bells in a cemetery. That's the impression I got from this performance. Um, the movement seems ominous, really. Um, this is kind of a heavy dream, I would think. By the end of the second minute, we get a mood change, something dark and heavy, rather than ominous. By 3 minutes and 39 seconds, we're back in the opening repeated chord. Uh, ends on an ominous chord that fades. Um, the third movement, Allegretto, so we're quickly out of that kind of heavier mood, is quick, and it quotes Mozart's A Voudrais-je Maman, which uh, in English is Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Okay, But uh, the, the French uh, title, if you want to look at it, translates to something like, uh, in New York English, um, um, I'm telling you, Mom! <laughs> Okay, or something like that. Let me tell you, Mom. That's what it means. All right, and it's got a. It's there are words to it too. It's like a French, you know, folk song. All right, it it's good humid. Uh, complete contrast to the middle movement with quick scale work skittering all over the keyboard and even a big glissando. <coughs> Excuse me. The quote happens. It just passed. The 32nd mark. I mean, you can't miss it. Twinkle, everybody knows <laughs> yeah. Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Um, by the one minute and 32nd mark, you hear all elements, including the quote, combined together. Good composing and excellent playing here by Oliveira, and ends on a generous and witty cadence. Um, so in sum, I like this album enough. I would have preferred interpretations that were less light and more full-bodied, but I can't complain about this. Um, this is the first time hearing most of these works. And I'm getting a good sense of the musicality of them from this um, recording. Um, the recording itself prevents the sound from leaping out of the speakers. Like they stay you know, <laughs> kind mm. of inside the speaker, like they're a, a kind of speaker wallpaper. Um, it's kind of like um, listening to this is kind of like looking at a painting hanging on a wall uh, rather than looking at, say, a three-dimensional sculpture. Okay, that has that that Z axis. Um, you don't get any sense of the dimensionality of Oliveira's sounds, if you know, assuming it's there. Um, nevertheless, the performances are idiomatic, and this is a good way to discover these works, I would say. And uh, keep them in mind, you might hear other pianists play them too. Anyway, Oliveira is an excellent pianist. He's very aristocratic in his approach, and I liked it. Yeah, I like this one too. Uh, there's a lot of variety here. Yeah, uh, with the different absolutely. Spanish dance feels in the various movements. And I like the programming a lot, too. Fernandez's first work is kind of sparse arranging, hmm. you know, not a lot of voicings going on in the piano. And like you said, you notice the kind of dry sound more in that piece. Hmm. But 
as the uh, program progresses, things get uh, a little bit more interesting harmonically, and especially right. I really enjoy adjust to the sound. To be honest, yeah, know. and I like the Blanco pieces a lot. Yeah, I like them Those too. Are really nice performances, uh, a little more emotional and uh, colorful, and then things get a little bit more modern in terms of the harmonies and uh, technical towards the end. So I, I thought it was a real good ordering of the works, and uh, most of these I hadn't uh, heard before. And uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, really interesting. Yeah, me too. Spanish piano music. Yeah, good way to dis discover some unknown composers, unknown mm -hmm. Spanish and Portuguese composers. All right, for the middle here, we're going to move into uh, Latin America. This is an album called Corazon, the music of Latin America. And this is played by, uh, the. Uh, this is cello and piano. Uh, the cellist is John Henry Crawford from Louisiana, USA. Wow. And uh, Victor Santiago Asuncion, who's a Philippine American, is the uh, on the piano. And then there's a guitarist too, who goes by the name of Gigi, J I J I, all capitals. And we don't know where she's from. Uh, <laughs> the notes don't tell us much about her. Uh, this is on the Orchid Classics label. Now you might wonder what this American dude. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing playing all this Latin American music. Well, it turns out that he, uh, for some competition or or some thing, he visited Mexico. And while he was down there, he heard all this uh, Mexican music and really took to it and started studying it. Now he's made this album of all this Latin American music. And um, it's nice that he did because we don't hear again a lot of this. And um, I'm going to have something to say about some of that because some of these composers are fairly well known. Hmm. And some of them, though they're well known, their music doesn't get played often. Um, maybe it does in Latin America itself, but even in the United States, you don't hear enough of it. It's sort of like, um, oh, well, let me get to that. Anyway, let's just start listening here where we're talking about these um pieces. The first is by Leo Brower, um, who's Cuban and uh, who's contemporary composer. He's very old now, but he's uh, he's still with us. Uh, this is called uh, Cancion de Cuna, and it's a berceuse, a um, lullaby. It's based on the Drum Negrita by the Cuban composer and pianist Eliseo Granet. Granet? Granet? I don't know. 1893 to 1950. Um, this piece starts with a pizzicato cello rhythm I, actually, it's kind of. I kind of wish I could have seen this performance. I can't tell if this is a pizzicato cello or a muted guitar. I'm pretty sure it's a pizzicato cello. It sounds pretty big. Then a bowed melody over arpeggiated guitar chords by Gigi. She's on the first track. One of the nice things about this album is that the accompaniment is going to alternate between guitar and piano, mm -hmm. so it keeps the ear engaged. This piece by Brower has a lovely melody, instantly memorable, uh, which Crawford shapes sensitively. Um, uh, this sets a good mood for what's to follow because we're going to hear a lot of very memorable melodies on this album. He's really uh, puts together an album of um, what the French would call bonbons, you know, these little musical sweets. Um, you know, so anyway, the first piece is warm and appealing. The second is by Hector Villalobos, the Brazilian composer. Um, he was a 20th century composer and his he, he wrote a lot of music. He has like over 200 opus numbers and uh, seemed to never stop composing. Um, and his music was heard quite a bit in the U.S. This particular piece is called O Canto do Cisne Negro. 
um, W122, for those of you who are into catalog numbers, um, which means Song of the Black Swan. Um, this is uh, adapted from Villalobos' symphonic poem, Nofragio de Cleonicos, in 1916, so it's a section of a larger work. Um, this one has arpeggio spray from the piano, so very light, gossamer um, spray of arpeggios, harp-like, as the cello plays the wide, generous melody. The entire piano part is arpeggiated chords, and it sounds rather challenging. Uh, especially to keep time while the cello is playing. Yeah. Uh, Santiago Asuncion gets a beautiful gossamer sound for Crawford to play over. There are some interesting chord changes. The cello really gets all the attention here, and it ends with repeating gentle chords on the piano that do a natural fade. Third piece is Carlos Guastavino. He's Argentinian, and this is called the Pampa Mapa. Anytime you hear a reference to the Pampas, you know you're in mm. Argentinian territory. Pampas are the plains of Argentina. Uh, Map of the Plains is what this um, title means. Costavino's music has almost always communicated a national feeling, and this was originally a song, this piece. It starts out rather raucously on the piano, which pounds out rhythmic chords, and it calms for the cello's singing line, which plays in between these chord rhythms. Um, a sudden loud piano chord ends the piece. Next is a composer that I really like and I want to hear more of, and uh, he's probably Mexico's most famous composer. This is Manuel Ponce. He's To Mexico, he's really what uh, Aaron Copland was, or anyway, uh, to the United States. Now, again, America and Mexico both are deeply you know, musical cultures. Okay, so they have a lot of popular music. There's a whole you know tradition of, um, you know, sort of national music and then there's like art music Emmanuel Ponce would be their most well-known um, classical music composer this piece is called uh, Por Ti Mi Corazon and uh, Ponce was keen to reunite the concert world with Mexican folklore and traditional songs and Mexico has a lot of those um, as is evident in this piece um, atmospheric piano melody and chords start this out and set up the cello's melody line as though he were a singer Indeed, this melody is very song-like, and Crawford plays it as though he were singing it. He has a nice sense of the ebb and flow of the melody, and really of a song's melody. Um, it's gorgeous and instantly memorable. All right, next, Egberto Gismonti, uh, who I kind of know from his recordings on the ECM label in the 1970s. Check those out. This is, piece is called Agua Evino, which is the name of an Egberto Gismonti album. Gismonti is a... Um, I hope I'm saying that right. Gismonti? I'm not sure. But he was a guitarist. He is a guitarist. He's still alive. And uh, this is from a song from the album of the same name. Uh, GG is accompanying on guitar. This starts with uh, Pizzicati again. Crawford plays the melody as the guitar gently accompanies. At a minute and 10 seconds, the entire texture changes as the guitar solos and the cello accompanies with pizzicato arpeggios. Gigi's playing here is very pretty and appealing. After this, we get back to the opening section, so this is an ABA form. Okay, back to the Mexican composer Manuel Ponce. This is called Estralita, his most famous piece. This is arranged by Gigi and Yasha Heifetz. Uh, one imagines they didn't arrange it together. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Ponce's most famous work here, Heifetz popularized it, which is why it's so famous. 
Um, and one can hear why, too. It's got a gorgeous, heartfelt melody, played sensitively here by Crawford with guitar accompaniment. And it's, it's the melody is romantic and warm. If you don't know it, it's kind of one of those tunes you should just know. So listen to that. Track seven, Astor Piazzolo. We're back in Argentina. Le Grand Tango, 1982. This piece was written for Mstislav Rostropovich. Um, this passionate piece combines tango rhythms with jazz syncopation. Please, there's no jazz rhythm. It's just the syncopation. Um, this is the first prolonged work on this album at 11 minutes long. It starts out with a marked tango rhythm. Piano is accompanying on this on this piece and it sounds louder than everything else on the album so far you might want to keep an eye on that uh, volume knob there's a quieting down at 40 seconds and there's a lot happening as we move from brief episode to brief episode the textural changes register well usually signaled by a sudden change in volume by the musicians there's a very dramatic slowing at 3 minutes and 25 seconds then a pause that leads into the next less rhythmically marked section we get back to tango shortly after. Um, again, the contrasting episodes continue. Um, each of them is like less than a minute. And uh, they build to the next tango-infused section. Crawford's expression comes from his variety of attacks with the bow here. Sometimes he'll let out a burst of brief tone, then sweetly play the melody. He's got a lot of um, swooping gestures to play in this piece. That kind of thing. Um, listen, for example, between the 9 minute and 9 minute and 30 second mark. Sliding down to a lower note than the one started on. Um, Santiago Asuncion on the piano is right in the idiom and good performance. Track 8. Hito Villalobos is back. Pequeña Suite, which means little sweet, from 1913. This is the Melodia movement. We only get one movement. And this piece, it says, reflects Villalobos' love of Bach, although I didn't really get a sense of that. Uh, gentle piano chords open this movement. The cello plays a muted melody, a big contrast from Piazzolla's preceding work. The sensitive melody is catchy and highly appealing. And as we've come to expect at this point in the recording, beautifully shaped. Yeah, Crawford's a cellist that I'm going to have to keep an ear out for. He sounds fantastic. He's very young, too. Hmm. Okay, ninth track, uh, Hector Villalobos again, Ondulando, um, undulating or waves-like or, or something. This piece is originally for solo piano. It was written in 1914. Um, the cellist arranged this work to bring out its melodic line. It sits atop the busier accompanying piano figures, and to be honest, I'm really curious to hear the piano version <laughs> now because I'm wondering how this melodic line would stand out with this accompaniment. Now, the music reaches a dramatic peak midway through at about the two-minute mark with a crescendo to a high note on the cello, which quickly dissipates and goes back to the opening melody played quietly. Okay, so we get the next is the big piece on this album, the third we hear here by the composer Manuel Ponce, his sonata, he's the Mexican composer, uh, sonata in G minor for cello and piano. First movement is Allegro Selvaggio, which kind of means wild. And um, this is more an example of, um, it says in the notes, Ponce's Latin American modernism. Um, this movement is stormy and surging. There's nothing particularly Latin American sounding about it or anything in this work. It's a straightforward classical music sonata, um, though one with a lot of attention-grabbing musical events. 
Um, it starts with an almost galloping rhythm on the piano, with the cello's melody bursting out on a hard attack. Um, there's a full-bodied sound on the cello. The recording here captures it well. Fair, I said fairly well. I would say, say well. You hear the attack and imagine and imagine anything you might be missing. Um, the piano has a lot of room reverb on it, placed slightly back, which is only right in this context. It's, it's very loud. The second theme of this sonata movement is in full contrast with the opening, a sweet, curvy melody that builds intention at its end to a false cadence, extending the theme and resolving at 2 minutes and 40 seconds. There's a brief coda into the development, which bursts in at 2 minutes and 48 seconds. The musicians play up the dramatic contrast to the hilt in this movement. There's some really sweet dancing moments in the development, such as the material around the uh, 4 minute and 15 second mark. The development is full of incident. It's very inventive. And I missed the start of the recapitulation because I was just so enraptured in the development that I didn't even notice it started. It happens at around the 5 minute and 30 second mark, and it rather surprised me. Um, the second quiet building theme repeats in the tonic key at around 6 minutes and 30 seconds. And there's a gorgeous, quiet close to the movement. Very creative, very eventful, this movement. And there are three more to come. The second movement is Allegro, rather surprisingly. Usually you get the uh, slow movement next, but not here. Um, this opens with um, a lovely uh, rippling sound on the piano with pizzicati on the cello. Uh, the piano plays shimmering repeated notes in the middle to high end of the instrument. And this shows Ponce's inventiveness again. Um, we get something more straightforward at the 52nd mark as the theme continues bowed on the cello now instead of pizzicati. The thematic material is excitable, softening to amiable at times. There's a rather quiet middle section beginning just after the two minute mark. The cello pretty much drones low notes in this section playing minimal melodic material, which draws attention to the piano. At three minutes and 30 seconds, the pizzicati and the repeating note thematic material in the piano return at a softer volume and with a gentler profile ends with a dramatic flourish. The third movement is an arietta, and uh, this uh, movement, the notes say, links the cello with the human voice. Um, the, very, the piano accompaniment is very gentle and supports the, uh, indeed, song-like cello throughout. Um, the piano's um, patterns are sort of repeating patterns and occasionally shimmering in its quicker detail. Uh, lovely material all around, very appealing the first time you hear it. Probably the most appealing, um, immediately appealing movement in this sonata. But actually, they're all really interesting. Last movement, Allegro Burlesco. Two arresting piano chords start this. Um, and then we get a sharply bowed attack on the cello, which plays a theme that it trades off with the piano. A slower section begins at around the two-minute mark, with the cello playing a melancholy theme. The piano responds at the two minutes and 31 seconds with something staccato and livelier, and we're back to the opening material. Um, this all gets rather more aggressive by the fourth minute, with the cello bowing bass notes as the piano plays thematic material, then abruptly shifts, shifts into a quiet section again, with the cello taking the lead. The cello attend ends this section with a sharp attack that leads to more upbeat material that leads to the end of the movement and the sonata as a whole. So really a very inventive work, uh, one that I would really urge you 
uh, classical music fans out there to hear. It's one that uh, should get an outing more often. There's still one more work, Astro Piazzolla's Oblivion from 1982, um, the same year as the Le Grand Tango. This has a mournful melody. Um, the cello plays the pizzicato bass and it bows, and I think it's multi-tracked. I think this is all him. The The booklet notes mm-hmm. don't say anything about how this is um, performed. Um, I'm guessing it's all him multi-tracked, though. There's no, there are no yeah. other instruments on the track, just lots of cellos. A huge string ensemble of just cello. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He it's must like have a, spent a, a lot of time in the studio. Caramel and definitely. chocolate sundae or something, you know. <laughs> of cello yeah <laughs> uh yeah nothing about this uh, uh in the yeah in the, no, the booklet notes and deep tones all the way through okay for me on this album manuel ponce's sonata the four movement sonata is the big find but really all of this music should be heard i enjoyed all of the arrangements and crawford's playing makes all of this music come up sounding fresh as it should he really gets the idiom i was um rather um um, impressed by that um, it's and th- these works are rarely heard on recordings these days so this is one really to uh, snatch up if you're interested in something new it's a great album for discovering what will be unfamiliar music to most yeah this is great uh, you know I'm a big cello fan I just love right. to hear cello and uh, I don't think I've ever heard this combination of Latin music and cello which just goes yeah. together wonderfully because of the rich melodies and Crawford's got an, a really wonderful, warm tone. It, it's just his instrument, you know, sounds just great. And his uh, playing style, as you say, he's really uh, gotten into the spirit of these compositions. And uh, the arrangements are great, too, with the piano and the guitar and the way that they've got, you know, the accompaniment passing back and forth between the guitar and uh, the cello, both doing sort of uh, little muted things, pizzicati. Uh, I was just uh, really drawn into it. It's gorgeous sounding. And uh, yeah. then it yeah. you know finishes off with that kind of shocking uh, all cello thing that you're like, whoa, right. what am I listening to here? Um, but yeah, really interesting works, a lot of things that I hadn't heard before. Uh, very you know enjoyable, melodic themes uh, all throughout everything. Uh, this was a really uh, enjoyable listen. Yeah. Anyway, so that, I think that might be my classical recording of the week. The next one, the third and final classical recording of the uh, evening, is a Fernando Lopez Grasa. I haven't heard of him either until now. Okay, He's a Portuguese composer from the 20th century. His years, 1906 to 1994. And these are um, orchestra works by him and one set of um, solo cello works. Um, these are performed by the Portuguese Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Bruno Borrelhinho, uh, who's and um, he also plays the solo cello on the uh, solo cello works at the end. So I think this is a project that he is uh, putting across. I think he's the main mover on it. Um, he wants to um, introduce uh, Lopez Grasta's um, music to a wider audience. Anyway, first, we need to know a little bit about this composer. Lopez Graça was born in Tomar, Portugal, and he was active politically in his life as an anti-fascist, opposing the dictatorship that had started via military coup in Mm. Portugal in 1926 and lasted until 1974. Mm. His his music from 1940 onwards... um, which um, is all of the music on this album, 
um, intertwines elements of Schoenberg, Stravinsky, and Bartok, along with traditional Portuguese music. Now, I should mention he doesn't sound like any of those no. composers. Okay, so... Um, but you can hear like the sort mm-hmm. of harmonic elements, I guess, at times. But they're fleeting. Um, one of the things that this composer likes to do um, is uh, because he's such a 20th century composer, he's using new ideas. And he'll compose in sort of um, these sort of melodic cells. And you'll you'll hear those cells like repeating like all over. And they'll sort of slowly morph into something else and you'll have like a longer melody and he'll avoid a lot of cadences in order to just sort of surprise you or build tension and just get into a new section and things like that so you're going to want to listen to that uh, be prepared not to get any resting time <laughs> when you listen to this music anyway yeah. the uh, first work on this <laughs> album I didn't mean sleepless nights no. <laughs> anyway the first work is uh, Divertimento. A divertimento means like um, just something that's going to divert you. It's fun. You know, it's not, it's light. Okay. And this is his Opus 107, written in 1957. It was composed as background music for the Portuguese Pavilion at the 1957 Lausanne National Fair. Um, all seemingly traditional Portuguese elements in these works are by the composer himself, so none of them is taken from Portuguese folk music. The music is predominantly good-humored, but occasionally ironic. There are a lot of unresolved dissonances that result in a constantly shifting tonal context, as I mentioned. Uh, this is the booklet saying this now. A predominant use of anticlimax, instability of rhythm and note values, specific timbral textures and a fragmentary nature of its musical discourse fragmentary is also a good word because he he does tend to compose it in fragments that get interrupted um and the first unresolved dissonances in this um piece lead to much of the rest i would say um the first um movement is an entrada entrance music and sounds almost classical in its dimensions the recording is clear with a bit of muffling over the brass um, they don't quite ring out very brightly. They're kind of, they got like sort of a matte finish to them, let's say. The movement has a kind of uh, toy soldier feeling to it. It's small in scale. It's a bit playful, as the title Divertimento would indicate. The texture suddenly changes at about two minutes, but we're quickly back to the opening material. There's a sudden unresolved ending and a long pause between each of these movements, really. By the way, those unresolved endings, get used to them. <laughs> <laughs> there are going to be a lot of them. He, he seems to like that. Anyway, second movement, Recreo Campestre, which means country playground. Um, he also seems to, this composer also seems to like wind instruments mm. a lot. They feature heavily in, in all of these works, and they start this work out, um, this movement out, uh, with some piquant harmonies thrown in <laughs> along the way. Ooh, a little, little spice mm. there. Okay. Sudden change of texture at about the one minute mark where some humorously interrupted phrases are heard. Uh, there's a more careful balancing act at a minute and 30 seconds to two minutes, which gives way to uh, fairground music at about the two minute mark. Um, so there's all sorts of like art music being sort of like juxtaposed with sort of fairground music or just music of the masses sort of uh, quality to this which is sort of characteristic of the 20th century in general um yeah this movement is a kaleidoscope of moods it's easy enough to keep up with them all when listening 
Um, not when I'm typing this, though, so <laughs> I didn't really label them all. Um, this is a good example of Lopez Grasa's unresolved and interrupted cadences in this movement. Third movement, choral, and that um, title means like a choral-type choral, something sung in church. So it's got chords, and that uh, provides the title. Its wind-led theme, again, um, is pretty sober-sounding, so... I'm thinking church here. Lopez Grasa seems to favor a sudden change of direction around the one to two minute mark. And this movement provides it at around a minute and 30 seconds with some easy to follow melodies spiced with more piquant harmonies. I'm really getting a lot of mileage out of that word this week. Piquant. Look it up. Use it every day. Fourth movement, intermezzo. Um, I, I'm guessing this is an oboe. I couldn't really tell. Um, starts with this movement with a long solo statement that comes across as archaic. Uh, we hear some brass at a minute or so with some deep brass snarls anchoring the harmony in the bass range. A march develops from all this by around a minute and 50 seconds, but quickly gives way to something else, as is Lopez Grasa's style. We get back to the opening material, this time harmonized by winds, with a string instrument thrown into the mix, providing counterpoint. Fifth movement, Fandango, which is, uh, in this case, is a dance. This is a very gentle Fandango, played first as short melodic sections. Again, this is a characteristic of Lopez Grasa's style. The main melodic material repeats often as this movement plays out like a set of reorchestrated variations. The bass drum ending provides some lightness of mood. Sixth movement, Ekloga, um, it would be like an eclogue, which is um, a pastoral sort of themed uh, poem. In this case, it would be a music, pastoral themed music with a light melancholy air. Uh, lots of slight departures from the opening material and reorchestrations of music previously heard. Seventh movement is the finale, upbeat tone set by this uh, dominant tonic 1-5 bassoon line, which the winds put an upbeat melody over and turns into something circus-like eventually. There are lots of swooping dissonant phrases in the winds. At a minute and 30 seconds or so, we get a change to something slower. The opening material returns soon enough, and we get some intriguing orchestrations just before the final cadence. So this is a lightish work, but it has a lot to listen mm. to in it. The material constantly changes its sound, never sticks around for long. There are lots of reharmonizations and reorchestrations of material showing that Lopez Grasa was a composer with a fertile mind. Tracks 8 to 11, Sinfonietta, Opus 220, written in the year 1980. And this is um, subtitled Homenachem a Haydn. So the composer Joseph Haydn. And that would suggest something from the classical era, the Mozart Haydn era. The Haydn element is work is heard in the lively spirit and transparency and concision of its construction. And it says, as well as the Haydn-sized orchestra. Um, I'll have something to say about that in a minute. Uh, duality of musical styles figures throughout the Sinfonietta. All right, the first movement, um, Adagio and Allegro Moderato. So these two um, directions indicate there's an introduction and then a main section. Um, so the introduction starts with uh, winds. It sounds like a bassoon solo, which Lopez Grasa seems to favor. He likes the winds. We hear them a lot on this album, and this starts with a very non-Haydn-sounding intro. It's got Lopez Grasa's fingerprints all over it. The more strident harmonies are missing, 
Um, but once the Allegro Moderato main section starts, we can hear a bit of Haydn's fleet style being echoed. To be honest, though, I feel like um, given the character of this material, that the conductor is making this section way too much. I feel like it could have been uh, lighter and fleeter. But then again, I'm not conducting it, so I really don't know if that would work. Um, I did enjoy the powerful timpani sound whenever it showed up. Uh, the movement comes across as ponderous in this performance, and I don't think it should be. Um, I don't think what if he's if he's calling it a homage to Haydn. I don't think this is what Lopez Grasa intended. Um, although, given some of the harmony. Um, maybe a slower speed and heavier sound is proper. Um, the heaviness lends drama to the work, and I could very well be reading too much into the dedication. It does seem at times like it wants to, like this movement wants to take off, and it doesn't. Um, but judge for yourself. And suddenly, mid phrase, as that's a <laughs> Lopez Grasa fingerprint, I've figured. Second movement, andante, and then piumoso, and then lento. Starts with an ominous funeral march, 1-5 uh, dominant tonic beat on the timpani as the thematic material plays on the winds. Surprise. <laughs> that funeral beat transforms into a livelier ticking shortly after and something more lively. This goes away, as is Lopez Carrasa's way, and goes back to something slower and heavier. It's not a cheerful movement. It's very brief, too. Third movement, um, Gaio. Now, the title in English would be gay, uh, means cheerful in this case, but kind of has a connotation in Portuguese of shrewd. Um, the theme is abruptly interrupted by a brief quotation from the trio section of the third movement, Manuetto, of Haydn's 100th Symphony, the Military Symphony. Um, there's a fight for supremacy between the two styles afterwards. Okay, so the harmony... Um, Lopez Grasa's harmony seems to get stuck in the A section of this work and effort is spent to get out of it so you kind of feel like the, the harmony sounds like it's like stuck in a ditch and it's kind of <laughs> trying to rev an engine to sort of uh, get out and the Haydn quote comes in very clearly at a minute and 17 seconds and we're thrust very suddenly into an elegant candlelit ballroom it's taken with a decent lilt and completely contrasts with Lopez Grasa's writing. It's an odd ending to the movement, uh, and it ends mid-phrase. Fourth movement, Allegro con Spirito. This is indeed spirited, light, and optimistic. The harmony soon goes astray a bit as darker, more ominous tones creep in, all before the one-minute mark. The playing gives this movement a big-boned quality. The playing and recording is very pleasant, but a bit on the slow side. Ends with a witty flourish on the cadence. Um, when you see a piece called Sinfonietta, you expect something light, at least I do. And I feel like this work would have been better served if it were played with a lighter sound and fleeter tempo. Again, this is just me putting my opinion on this. You should judge for yourself. Uh, this performance gives a work a heaviness that I really don't feel is there. But it does bring out a lot of the piquant harmonies. <laughs> okay. Next, we have uh, tracks 12 through 16, Cinco Vejos Romances Portugueses, Opus 98. By the way, um, sorry for my approximation of pronunciation here. I really don't speak Portuguese. I do love the way it sounds, though. Um, this, this was composed between 1951 and 1956. All of the thematic material is based on traditional material, possibly of troubadour origin. It does sound very old. Um, these 
romances were sung by women about women, and that's where they get their titles from. Um, th we're just getting orchestrations here. The first movement, or the first of the Cinco Vejos, is a romance de Dona Silvana. has a modal harmony, a very warm string orchestration with a floating feeling. It feels almost devout and religious. Some nice high wind harmony just before the minute mark in the background. Um, something more ominous starts with the timpani in the second minute. The material is mostly played by the winds here, and we get a repeat of the opening material accompanied by timpani this time after the ominous section ends. Second piece, Romance de Santa Catarina. Okay, so we get a saint. Those warm string harmonies from the first work return to introduce this work with a more mobile melodic line in the intro. The main theme is folk-like and taken by the winds with strings providing harmony. The orchestration here as in the first work is big bones when the strings come in and thins out when the winds take over. Uh, this particular piece is pretty brief at 2 minutes and 9 seconds. There are some odd rising harmonies at about a minute and 25 seconds. Then the opening material repeats and brings the work to a close with the cadence. Third, Romance de Dona Infanta. This is briefer still at a minute and 26 seconds. This starts with brass and winds. Strings come in to fill out the texture. It's interesting how Lopez Grasa likes to give the orchestral sections time by themselves rather than blend them all together. Like you'll hear winds and then you'll hear strings, you'll, but you won't always hear them blended together for new colors. It's pretty interesting. Um, he, it's like he wants these individual primary colors to stand out. We never get far from the opening material in this brief piece. It's very appealing. Romance de Donna Angela follows. This starts with reed instruments probably oboe, taking the main melody as strings and the rest of the winds accompany. There are some brief descending Spanish eighth, eighth note flourishes at the end of phrases. Um, this sticks to the main material, which gets reorchestrated. And the fifth thumb and last of this set, Romance de Santa Iria, is a little more complex than the other works in this set. It features a theme that changes its mood and orchestration each time it's repeated. I'm finally getting at this point that Lopez Grasa is taking the verses of each song and giving them different orchestrations to keep them instrumentally interesting. This ends with a bold, big orchestration. I think I would have liked these. Um, they're very appealing, these pieces, but they're very brief. Mm. And I think I would have really gotten more into them if I knew um, the words or the um, or what these particular songs were about or what mm. the romance of these women, the story of these women was about. I could probably follow the emotion a bit more easily. Anyway, we end tra on tracks 17 through 20 with the Cuatro Invensores, Opus 148 from 1961, for solo cello. Okay, so Bruno Borrojino, the uh, conductor, is playing the solo cello here. Um, Lopez Grasa classified this phrase of his compositional life as atonal dramatic expressionism. But <laughs> don't go running for the door yet. These are pretty appealing pieces. Um, the movements are characterized by developing variation technique based on intervallic cells. So you're going to hear these little phrases that kind of keep being repeated in different areas of the cello to build the entire piece. You know, that's, that's the structure. You can follow that. The first one, marked Allegro, starts off in an appealing um, way with the strong big bone sound on the cello as it plays a staccato theme, followed up by a more legato or higher up in the cello's range. 
Borralino has a light touch, but nevertheless manages to get a big sound out of the instrument when necessary. I think he's pretty closely mic'd as well. Um, he gets enough variety in his sound to keep the listener's interest. Second movement, or the second invenzoe, is an andante. Starts out, I should just call them inventions, that's what they are. He's, he's naming these after Bach. Um, starts in a more downcast, mournful way, with a heavy sound, lightly bowed from the lower end of the instrument. By the two-minute mark, this cellular phrase refigures itself so that it climbs high into the instrument's register. We hear this familiar figure throughout the invention, sometimes slowed down, sometimes legato, sometimes staccato. It ends inconclusively, the, the um, invention, in the middle of one of these motivic phrases. The third invention is marked vivace and features quick staccato repeating notes in the beginning. The repeated notes are kind of motif. They briefly disappear for some brief cello flourishes only to come back. There's a more legato melodic middle section, but it's very brief. It hangs around long enough to set off the two rushing repeated notes sections from each other. Ends on a high staccato note. Fourth invention is marked lento. Double stopped low notes begin. So this is sort of a big contrast to the third one, which is mostly um, a staccato. Some thematic material emerges from this in the cello's mid-range. At about the one-minute mark, a sort of pattern is established as the material moves toward the upper range, but stalls out somewhere in the middle. The melody briefly frees itself in the third minute, then the double stop material returns as the melody sinks back into the lower range. It ends a bit higher up on a sweetened chord. I thought these works were cleverly constructed. You can hear their integrity as they progress um, in the sort of material that's building them, the, re the repeated uh, little melodic uh, cells. The audibility of the structuring material makes them pieces satisfying. Okay, so all in all, this album is, uh, this composer is a nice discovery. I was interested in the constant searching that Lopez Grasa engages in in all of these compositions um, without many cadences for resting on. Um, I thought the performances were also very good. I thought, as I said, the Sinfonietta could have been livelier, but the rest of the works seem well done. Um, this is one of those recordings where there's no real template to refer to for the performance of these works, so we only have these to listen to. Um, this is going to act as a reference point to any um, future recordings. Um, I think Lopez Garasa's music might be something waiting to be discovered. When I was listening to this, I was pretty aware that this will probably um, repay repeated listening, and I should probably listen to it a few more times. Yeah, this was interesting to me. Um... The only thing I didn't care for was were the Invencois at the end, uh, no. even though I like cello. Um, much of what drew me to his composing was the really interesting tone colors. Lots of winds, brass and woodwind. A lot of winds. And uh, very interesting use of uh, harmony. Kind of fun dissonance, I thought. Uh, mm. It's peppered in surprises you at some point but it's it's usually done in a very kind of playful uh, or interesting way and uh, yeah. as you say the the key centers are constantly moving uh, with those yeah. little cells of melody um, but it, it does uh, somehow the way that he leads from one thing to the next uh, even there's kind of like you said a cellular component to it it's connected so well uh, with all the changes that it, it really draws you through the piece and you remain interested, especially in the divertimento. You know, they're usually kind of um, 
you know, light entertaining pieces, but there's a lot going on compositionally here. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was just really interesting. Uh, helped me right through, especially with some of the challenging harmonies and little suspenseful things in there with the timpani and whatnot. And I enjoyed the uh, Sinfonietta as well. More interesting harmonies, different kind of playful lines, the same pepper dissonances. Yeah, the romances are kind of uh, sh- short <laughs> just when you're getting into them. But yeah. they do have a lot of nice uh, changes and tonal colors too. And then uh, even so, I just um, there wasn't that variety of uh, tone colors and whatnot. They're kind of interesting uh, rhythmically and uh, what's being developed. Uh, but uh, I really see his uh, charm in the use of the colors of the orchestra, and uh, for that hmm. it's very yeah interesting. I think it'll take a few more listens to get a map of what's going on with all those fragmented things that sh- that pop up in there. I'm thinking his time may have come because it, the way the music is constantly changing, it it kind it kind of it seems like it would suit um you know the our uh smartphone generation with our short attention right, spans, right. you know, cuz the you know it's every as everything changes your mind can just kind of flit along with the music to these uh mm-hmm. these new sections. So um he might be something for our age. Yeah. I hope he, uh, hope we hear more. All right. Yeah. I think it's uh, jazz yeah. time. It is jazz time. It's always jazz time, though, really, isn't it? It, it sure is. Uh, anyway, we're going to start in Spain mm. for the uh, beginning of the tour with the first two recordings. Now, I'm not sure how to say this uh, musician's name, actually, if it's Jan or Jan uh, Dominic. Yeah. who is a, a pianist and composer from Barcelona. And we've got his release that came out in the end of May, The Magical Forest Tour. And it's on Fresh Sound New Talent label, uh, which we've uh, featured a lot of releases from. And uh, he describes this as a, a set of compositions that narrate a part of an intimate adventure in a magical forest. Uh, And he says, which I created with the intention of recovering the freedom lost during the confinement suffered during measures against the COVID pandemic. Uh, It is also a revindication of music as expression of freedom. So a little free romp in the forest here. Certainly kept us free during the uh, pandemic. We've got uh, Dominic on piano, uh, who's also the uh, composer of all the works. Victor. Carascosa on trumpet, Marcal Peramon, tenor sax, Juan Pastor, bass, Enric Foster, drums. And we've got some special guests. Uh, the album actually title says featuring Danny Perez on guitar. Uh, he shows up on uh, four tracks. Joan Marti, flute. Uh, we've got uh, Andrea Motis, the uh, trumpet player and vocalist getting a lot of attention from Spain. She's just here on vocals on one track, and that kind of rounds out the ensemble. We start out with a track called Departure. Uh, this one begins with a loping ostinato bass line, opens it up into some pretty piano chords, sounds like some major sevens and rich uh, kind of harmonies there. Uh, trumpet and sax come in with a breezy melody line over a kind of Latin beat carried on in the cymbals by uh, Fuster changes up to a swing section and then back to a kind of final Latin straight beat. So some variety of rhythms going on there. Uh, gets into swing again at the end of the melody into a trumpet solo from Carascosa. He's got a nice fat tone, a little breath in there up close to the mic. Uh, I like the old style kind of articulation that he has. He keeps the 
swing nice and relaxed even when he's blowing out some of his speedier lines. Paramount is up next for a tenor sax solo. He's also got a nice fat tone, relaxed swing sense that works well here. Then Dominic is next on piano, showing off a nice sense of touch, a lot of clearly articulated high notes in the right hand and punchy left hand accompaniment figures. Uh, they go around the melody once more, breezing through the Latin swing change-ups in there. It's a very nice start to the tour of the forest. Uh, track two, Contrast. <laughs> this one's got a, kind of a rubato piano opening with some melancholy chords. Uh, a really warm and then soaring high melody comes through from uh, the trumpet with some softer backing from the sax. Uh, there's a little bass pulse, but no drums. Uh, and then it comes down quietly again for just piano. These are, must be kind of the start of the contrast, you know, hinted at with the title. Uh, bass and brushed drumming join in for a steady slow beat. And then uh, Danny Perez joins in on a very clear toned electric guitar uh, solo with uh, also really clear picked out articulation. Uh, it slows comes to a pause uh, around 2 minutes and 40 seconds. Then Perez sets a new groove uh, with some funky guitar picking. The drums and bass join in on that new funky groove, but it changes up to swing and then back again as the horns come in uh, with lines on top. Uh, it's swinging really heavily at three and a half minutes where Paramount gets a tenor sax solo. He gets some nice raw intensity and a rougher sound in his lines here. Uh, Dominic is next on piano, uh, starting rhythmic and bluesy, uh, working up through some cool harmonic ideas to high trills uh, and exciting lines uh, with nice agility. He trades some percussive and fun rolling chords uh, with fills from Fuster on drums, uh, who then gets his own solo, mixing up the cymbals and toms nicely, uh, finishing it up with some tight snare rolls and then kicking it back into another round of the melody. Uh, this is a fun tune, and it does have a lot of contrasts indeed. Uh, it keeps you uh, going in lots of different directions. Track three, Avui. This one starts uh, in 6-8 with long horn lines and piano underneath, uh, giving chiming chords to the beat. Uh, the next section of horns gets some more motion, and along the way, the meter changes up between 4-4 four, four and 6-8. Uh, this will keep you counting. <laughs> and uh, lots of things changing up there. Caracosa starts his uh, trumpet solo with some nice agile lines to, in the 6-8 feel, but it switches up to swing again before long. I like the chances he takes in his solo here. Uh, he gets himself into some tight spots harmonically and then finds resolutions. Something we used to hear more of in uh, the 60s with the jazz musicians who uh, took lots of chances and made things exciting. I like mm -hmm. that. Uh, Dominic is next with a nice swinging phrasing in his solo in a more flowing style. Nice rhythmic combinations between his hands. The horns come in behind as he pushes to a climax and they take it around the tune once more with a little surprise pause at the end. Mm -hmm. The fourth track is the title track, The Magical Forest Tour. The title track is a rhythmic one. There's a cool groove with gaps in the bass and piano uh, left hand uh, while the right hand has syncopated chords. Uh, add some horn lines on top and uh, interesting chord changes and uh, it's an exciting beginning to the tune. Paramount is up first on tenor for a solo. Uh, he has some nice uh, 
outside of the chord uh, licks and gets speedy and raw at the end. Then Perez is up for guitar solo after that. This time he's got a rockier and edgier tone. Uh, he surfs over these interesting chord changes nicely, adding a little raunch to the tone at the end. Uh, everything comes down slow and quiet at 3 minutes and 40 seconds or so with soft horn lines. Uh, then just soft piano and tight brushes on the drum remain for a delicate bass solo from Pastor. Then Dominic takes over with the solo of some clear high melodies on piano, gradually builds the intensity, adding interesting counterlines in the left hand uh, as his right hand runs build up more and more. The horns come in for backing as they push into a nice climactic melody phrase with a soaring trumpet line, and then Dominic takes it down softly to the ending. The next one, track five, The Storyteller in the Forest Clearing. This is a slow and breezy uh, with vocalizations uh, from Andrea Motis. Perez is on guitar, sometimes doubling the vocal melody lines. Uh, the melody ends on an unusual low pitch, and then uh, Pastor gets a bass solo. Uh, he builds up the tension into the upper range of the instrument. Uh, Perez gets a guitar solo following that with a rich reverby tone this time. Uh, he builds up the intensity, adding cool double stops and punchy phrasing uh, before floating over the cymbal fills uh, with some rubato phrases as the tune comes to a pause. Uh, he then takes it back into time uh, with some uh, pickup notes to a final melody line. And uh, I like how he's altering uh, his guitar tone to match uh, each tune. Uh, it kind of blends in well. Track six, The Witch and Her Creatures. An interesting hmm. cycle of syncopated piano chords make the intro here. Soft trumpet and sax lines get added on top, and then a melody of Perez's clean-toned guitar again, and uh, Joan Marty on flute. Uh, this is a really nice, lush blend of sound, uh, guitar and flute together. Then, you know, the horns doing something separate to that. Uh, the melody builds up into a climax, and Marty gets a flute solo. Uh, she leaves enticing gaps of uh, anticipation, uh, in there. The rhythm breaks up, things get a little bit free uh, before a new intense groove starts to form in the cymbals. Marty captures a kind of witchy spirit with the interesting choices of notes she plays next. Perez is next with the edgier rocky sound as the horns uh, lines swell below and the drums kick up an intense storm. It works back into the melody section with flute and guitar again, kind of at full volume this time, and then comes down for just the cycle of piano chords for a softer ending. Track seven, Strange Road. It's a tight little drum roll on something. <laughs> it's an interesting <laughs> little sound there. Uh, kicks it into a funky alternating phrase line in the bass and left hand of the piano over light and tight drums. Caracosa adds a melody line on Harmon muted trumpet. Sax joins with harmonized lines and other counter lines. Uh, then they move in unison through the next section. There's a little soft piano interlude, and then Paramon has the lead through the next section, building up tension uh, with rhythmic sax lines. Karkosa gets a muted trumpet solo, uh, next snaking lines over the bouncy bass and uh, nicely mixed up drumming from Fuster. Uh, the tuning gets a little bit out of hand on the trumpet here, as can happen <laughs> with a Harmon mute. Um, Dominic is next with a very punchy rhythmic solo. Uh, this is one of those double espresso moments. <laughs> he just sort of uh, boom, <laughs> comes out and he really hammers on it. Uh, Saxon trumpet double up on the last rhythmic section of the melody. And then it comes down 
soft and dreamy over the original riff uh, with open trumpet. This time he lost the mute uh, and a little sax for the end. And we're going to finish up with the track nine, Way Home. This one has a slow and flowing piano, bass, and drum intro. Warm trumpet and sax lines join for the melody, and you can feel the 6-8 flow. It suddenly gets surprisingly bluesy and rhythmic for a bit from Dominic's piano, but then it's back to mellow for Caracosa with a warm trumpet-toned solo. Uh, he gets more animated with agitated lines and goes through a little bluesy rant himself. Uh, once again, it comes down for a very soft uh, bass solo from Pastor. His nice tumbling line ideas, uh, which he repeats and sketches out some nice melodies on the bass. Dominic follows uh, with a more restrained uh, piano solo ideas. He gets more rhythmic and you can hear some vocalizations along with this playing. Fuster gets the beat going heavier as Dominic builds it up. He's got interesting left-hand things going on, and then he really bursts out, breaking up the rhythms with his lines and building to percussive chords. He continues on as the horns come in blazing for a final climactic line. Uh, it then comes down soft uh, for Dominic to finish it off quietly uh, with Pastor's bass softly underneath. And so there's your forest tour. I thought it was an engaging hmm. recording with fresh sounding compositions and arrangements. Keep you entertained with unexpected twists and surprises. Dominic's piano playing is intense and varied in touch and emotions. The other soloists are all good and we get some tonal variety with different ideas. As I mentioned, Perez's alternating tone styles on guitar. Also, we get the added uh, flute, which makes a nice tonal color there, and Motisse's uh, kind of airy vocals. So it's a fun romp through the forest. <laughs> I, yeah, I thought the same. I I actually enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would because of the you know the title. Hmm. I was like, oh, the, for, the forest <laughs> and all these like kind of new agey sort of titles, like the storyteller in the forest clearing. Hmm. You know, it's a title that you expect to hear on one of those old like Windham Hill <laughs> records, but it's nothing no, like no. that. Please, it was a, it was a really enjoyable recording, even though it, it does have the, this quality of being very positive in its tonality and rhythm. It's sort of uplifting, like he said. I mean, he said, um, yeah, he was kind of like thinking of the freedom in his, um, you know, during the pandemic, he was trying to re recall this uh, musical freedom of being outdoors. So I just felt the record was like, you know, it was um, positive, it was generous and it, with its uh, invite musical gestures and it was just really enjoyable and nice and um had enough um um musical events happening to hmm. keep you engaged it wasn't you know yeah very light at all so just a really good recording all around yeah really fresh compositions and nice um yeah uh, arrangements there so uh, yeah check that out hmm. now we're gonna stay in uh spain for a little bit more kind of uh, traditional jazz program here the leader uh, drummer Enrique Heredia, and he is uh, from Barcelona, born 1968, and he's got his uh, trio here featuring trumpeter Bene Palais, also, I believe, from Barcelona. So that will be rounding out on bass, Curo Galvez, and on piano, Michel Faber, and Bene Palais on trumpet and flute now you don't get a lot of trumpet players who also play flute you know it's a lot of sax yeah. players double on it and two sides actually that show a very similar part of his lyrical personality which we'll get to i'm gonna go here uh so we're going to uh start out with uh 
jazz standard. Now, that's the other thing that I liked about this uh, recording. There's no original compositions on here, but it's an interesting selection of material, kind of uh, covers of jazz musicians' original tunes that we won't hear other people play usually. So uh, I thought that was kind mm. of interesting. But this one's an old favorite, How Deep is the Ocean? And it starts with a piano intro over repeated high bass note uh, and octaves uh, in the bass. Pallet comes in with the melody on trumpet, and he continues on into a solo uh, with a reserved lyrical style. His sound has a delicate honesty to it, uh, reminding one a lot of Chet Baker's playing. Midway through, uh, Heredia kicks up the beat to more of a driving swing, and Pelle swings on, connecting his ideas into engaging melodies. Uh, Faber is next on piano, playing rhythmically with lots of uh, percussive chords matching the steady swing pulse of Heredia. The drums drop out, and things come down for a bass solo from Galvez. He has an easy, flowing, and melodic solo. Uh, trumpet and piano then trade eights with Heredia for some uh, drumming focus. He leaves lots of intriguing space <laughs> in the first uh, <laughs> break, almost reticent to uh, play and not wanting to show off. Pallet takes another round of the melody to finish things off with a few gentle improvisations over the final stretched out chords. Then we've got Emily, movie theme uh, by Johnny Mandel. I think 1964, the Americanization of Emily. Who starred Julie Andrews. Uh, kind of pretty melody. Oh, I didn't see that one. Uh, anyway, it's a Boy. pretty rubato piano intro, joined by bass pulse on mostly high single notes. Heredia adds the waltz feel on cymbals as Palais takes the melody, this time on flute. And uh, he's got a really rich lower register uh, where the melody starts out. Uh, he continues on for an improvised solo. This Heredia adds more forward motion to the groove. And he has the same lyrical style on flute as he does on trumpet, uh, always richly melodic playing. Uh, Faber follows on piano with the solo climaxing in chiming chords. And then Pale blows another line uh, through the melody. Nice sounding flute here. Uh, then this uh, piece that I really like, Retrato in Branco e Preto, or portrait in black and white as it's known in English but in Portuguese it's portrait in white and black and um, hmm. this is a Hobim Antonio Carlos Hobim tune and uh, there's a story it's based on another melody that was from before and when words were added I think the black and white were reversed in Portuguese so that the the lyrics rhyme anyway uh, uh -huh. this uh, piece is uh, recorded notably uh, by Chet Baker on his Chet Baker in Tokyo album. It's a really beautiful rendition. And uh, I'm assuming Pale is familiar with that because he has so much uh, Chet Baker influence in his sound. And uh, what the, comes out in this, almost a tribute to that recording, I felt. It's a piano intro with pretty figures uh, over Heredia's brushes of subdivisions. Pale is back on trumpet for the melody. Very nice, breathy, and warm tone, handling the the odd interval jumps in this interesting melody. It's da -ru, da -ru, da -ru, da -ru. it kind of uh, you know has these interesting uh, jumps that build tension. Uh, lots of, uh, as I said, that kind of Chet Baker influence and in phrasing here. It's a relaxed approach on his trumpet solo with lots of space. Takes his time to build it up. A smooth lyrical ending. Uh, Faber follows with a piano solo focusing on a clear touch and some well-articulated tinkling high notes. Once more, Around the Melody by Palais and a pretty piano ending. 
by Faber to finish it up. This is just a lovely song. Track four, Dolphin Dance, the old Herbie Hancock tune. Faber makes an interesting intro with running left-hand figures uh, under chords into a swinging melody by Palais. Galvez has a taut bouncing going on in the bass and changes up to walking on sections of the melody. Uh, Pelle has a more animated solo with faster lines on this one, and Faber has a nicely swinging solo on this track with uh, well-punctuated chords. And then kind of the uh, interesting focus of this album, we've got several compositions by uh, Herb Geller, pianist, and uh, these are really nice uh, songs, and I wonder why nobody else... uh, seems to record these. Uh, first one, Space a la Mode. Another really pretty piano intro here for this lush minor ballad. Palais back on flute for the melody, blowing warm lower register tones, but with some rising flurries now and then. Uh, Heredia paints soft brushing textures uh, on the drums underneath. Galvez has a deep and relaxed bass solo. It gets a bit bluesy midway through before a flute solo from Palais. It's tasty, sometimes vulnerable sounding. Uh, just lovely. Uh, Weber has a piano solo then with chiming rhythmic chords before they go around the pretty theme once more with a fancy flute ending over the stretched out chords. And another tune that we uh, don't hear that often, uh, Hampton Hawes Sonora. Galvez gets a bossa nova bounce going for the piano intro and plays back on trumpet for the plaintive minor melody. Uh, Heredia keeps the pulse with some delicate brushwork and nice cymbal washes. Faber is up first for a rhythmic solo with a lot of neat triplet ideas. Palais solo explores the harmonies with fast tumbling figures and ties back into a final round of the melody. Track 7, another Herb Geller tune, Holiday Cheer. This one's uh, a medium bouncy swing waltz uh, for Palais to handle on flute. Heredia marks out the feel with delicate cymbal work and little fills. Then Palais gets some nice triplet figures and flighty runs and fluttering figures in his solo here. Faber has a bouncy piano solo matching Heredia and Galvez's groove perfectly. And Palais finishes it off with some tasty flute lines. We're going to get uh, another standard, Kurt uh, Ville's Speak Low, a uh, familiar melody to most people. Uh, Heredia starts it off with a clicky groove. And Palais joins in on the famous melody, uh, this time on trumpet. They make a nice break and dash on the swing section of the tune. It's uh, split up from uh, straight to swing, uh, usually done that way, but the contrast is emphasized here. There's another break, and Palais is energized out of the gate for a swinging solo with lots of motion in his lines. He squeezes out some higher register ideas in this one. Uh, has some nicely modulating rhythmic figures, too. Uh, Faber swings hard on the piano solo with some punctuated driving chords. And here, finally, the leader, Heredia, takes a drum solo. Not flashy, but with uh, tasty ideas before they go through the melody a last time with some final exuberant improvisations from Palais. And ending it up is an alternate take of uh, Geller's Space a la Mode. It's the same exact arrangement, but the solos are quite different, so it is worth comparing these two. I actually think I prefer the more animated flute solo on uh, this alternate take. So it's mostly a mellow listen, but there are some good swinging moments. It's a nice selection of tunes, especially the uh, Herb Geller and Hampton Hawes originals that I don't think I've heard anyone else uh, play. Extremely lyrical playing from Palais on both trumpet and flute, 
And uh, Heredia stays in the background mostly with just tasty and subtle drumming. This is a nice one for a relaxing Sunday afternoon or uh, such a time. Uh, just good jazz. Played really well. Yeah, the thing that uh, struck me about this is the same as you. Is it's the uh, the choice of tunes. They were familiar, but not that familiar. Right. You know, and I really enjoyed that. I like it when these things are sort of brought back to my memory. Right. And uh, most of the record was it's it's gentle and it's very appealing. A lot of pleasing sounds in it, and not least the flute. I'm always happy when there's yeah. a jazz flute. It's one of those instruments that I like hearing in jazz. And it happens to fit in beautifully in um, this record with its uh, really gentle mood. Um, yeah, I liked hearing Dolphin Dance. It's, it's Herbie Hancock, yeah. right? That one yeah. is from, uh, yeah. And the Retrato in Branco Preto, that the Hobin yeah. piece that I really enjoyed as well. But yeah, all of this, mm. it was really good. It was... Um, but it just kind of low key, so just for a, I guess a late night album. I yeah, late night, say. and this is the kind of um, I don't want. I wouldn't call it, you know, easy listening. It's just pleasing. Uh, you know, you can put this on pleasing. anytime. Even jazz, someone who's not into jazz will probably enjoy the nice grooves and melodies right. of this recording. Yeah, like well, yeah, it was, it was sort of uh, special. I liked it. We're gonna end up with uh, you know. I knew we were gonna do uh, as we said a. Uh, a, uh, from Iberia to America's idea. So uh, you don't get a lot of South American uh, jazz other than, you know, sort of Latin jazz things. And so when this one popped up, I said, mm -hmm. oh, well, let me check this out. And we're going to go to Chile for this one nice. with uh, the piano trio of uh, Camilo Aliaga. And this is his debut recording. And it's also a self-released record which means, one, it's hard to get a lot of information about the musicians and things, but I, <laughs> I got the minimum. And I also think that um, because uh, it's his own release, he's taken some pretty adventurous uh, license with the programming here. Yeah, it's kind of, the, the, well, you, you, yeah. you tell them and I'll come in. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, he's the son yeah. of a drummer and of a drummer and percussionist, and his brother is also a, a musician. He began playing piano at age of four, uh, studying with the Suzuki method, and uh, hmm. then later went on to uh, study some uh, jazz. And uh, let's see, it says also that he played at the uh, Newport Jazz Festival uh, in 2018. So he's uh, up-and-coming young pianist, and uh, with him in his trio here, Rodrigo Espinosa on bass and Juan Pablo Jaramillo on drums and uh, there's a couple of guests on the recording here too which i'll point out as we go uh so we begin with the title track ciclos uh, this one starts with a bass intro of rising and falling intervals that uh, kind of outline a minor mode aliaga sprinkles in some mysterious high notes getting more animated slowly over this minor modal feel Jaramillo sneaks in gradually with some brushing on drums after a brief pause, they move into the melody uh, that has little breaks of drums and bass uh, for just the piano to float over on its own. Jaramillo gives it some nice push with nicely subdivided drumming, and Espinosa varies the bass patterns before returning to the intro riff idea for Aliaga to begin soloing over. He builds it up slowly, staying melodic and relaxed, but with a 
steady left hand of punctuated chords. It reaches a climax of higher, chiming chords. Uh, next, they go around the melody pattern again together. At about five and a half minutes or so, it transforms into a major kind of mode feeling with alternating chords. And Haramiyo gets some extended drum time, starting with brushes lightly and then working up to heavier stick work. They transition back to the original minor mode thing with the bass pattern, and Aliaga finishes it up with some sparse rhythmic improvisations until the final cadence. Second track, uh, Caminos. Caminos, I guess it's like pathways or roads. Mm. Uh, rhythmic piano intro with a gospely melody. Uh, interestingly, there's a layer of organ added with a little Leslie effect uh, swirling it nicely as bass and drums join in on a slow, steady beat. Uh, Aliaga works it up slowly, emphasizing this repeated uh, rhythmic note that keeps building and coming back around. Uh, it comes down bef right before three minutes for a solo with a nasty sound that uh, <laughs> sounds like electric piano mixed with distorted guitar. <laughs> Must be one of his keyboard uh, tones. Uh, but he keeps the organ sound subtly in the background too. It's funky, but even as he works out cool licks, uh, the feel stays relaxed. Uh, there's a nice quick return to the original mellow piano intro at just after five and a half minutes. And they groove it out and end with a bluesy break for piano. Uh, now we're going to get to some of the interesting things. <laughs> here we go. Here we yeah. go. <laughs> uh, there's uh, several pieces here that are like uh, keyboard code combinations. Uh, and this one is Control plus Z. And um, actually, the, so these are kind of free compositions, but they're based on uh, something that connects at least the first two. And that is what it starts out with, this swinging unison lick for bass uh, and piano uh, with tight drum fills around it and some heavy dissonant chords uh, that get it started out. Uh, the beat dissolves and it gets kind of amorphous with some sparse piano and bass tones uh, picking up the uh, lick pitches from before. Espinoza gets busy on the bass by himself with kind of uh, conversational phrases. Like I, I imagined like a, uh, someone muttering to themselves. <laughs> it's kind of like a little <laughs> self-dialogue going. Uh, there's some piano s uh, string scratching and unusual percussion with piano chords added underneath his bass. Then Aliaga next rolls out some sustained piano notes and chords into a low rumble, and then agitated runs over more bass rumbling. It sounds like a thunderstorm is coming through. And then <laughs> Aliaga ends it with a new piano theme uh, over bass and light uh, drum tom rumbles. Uh, so a bit of a freeform uh, piece that starts yeah. on that kind of unison thing, but uh, explores uh, uncharted places. Track four. I don't know if this, uh, I don't have any, I assume these other pieces are his originals. This one sounds like it could almost be a pop song. It's called Charlie. It's a slow, I, Yeah, I, it's familiar sounding. It reminded yeah. me, it reminded me like John Sebastian. Yeah. You know, welcome back. It had that kind of like right. piano line or um, if you saw Dog Day Afternoon, the, mm. the opening theme in that was uh, Amarina by Elton John. Right. Doesn't it? sound like Elton John. Yeah, but it, it could be a pop tune. But that tune. kind of sound, It's yeah. got um, a slow yeah. and rocky drum beat intro. Piano and bass join in for a few times around the chords. And then Aliaga gets to the pop song-like melody in the middle range of the piano, uh, also adding organ washes behind it. 
It works into a new section with rhythmic chiming chords and some alternating electric piano sounding uh, tones that are sort of play off set to the what the piano is doing. Uh, that breaks into a final solo exposition of the melody theme on the piano, uh, ending on a tasty chord with a little more organ. Hmm. Then we get another really contrasting uh, piece, Octubre, with uh, Maria Segu on vocals. That's the only vocal piece here. It starts with a slow and rich piano intro. It's very rubato with some kind of more pausing on the last beat of this 6-8 feel uh, that develops uh, with rhythmic left-handed figures. Segu comes in with the breathy and soft vocal that does become more emotional and insistent. Aliaga takes a solo playing uh, very melodic ideas with a very relaxed feel. Uh, and then Segu returns for one more verse that ends uh, up with a pretty but unresolved piano chord. So just uh, only uh, piano and vocals here, no bass or drums. And we get our next control, <laughs> control plus Y. This one starts with a soft drum intro, kind of intermittent tom playing. Then Espinoza adds some percussive bass figures and Aliage sketches out what I called non-sequitur piano lines in open space. <laughs> so they don't, uh, the each uh, idea is a surprise not connected to what you've just heard, seemingly. I said that the piano was almost in 12-tone mode yeah. at one point. Yeah. It really sounded like one of those pieces from the mid-20th century. Yeah, he's purposely moving things uh, yeah. around, keeping your ears guessing on the yeah. tonal centers. Uh, Espinosa works up a walking motion then, and uh, Jaramillo gets some rhythmic ideas on muted cymbals going as uh, Aliaga works an improvised melody on top, uh, reaching a repeated note and some rhythmic chords and two-handed figures uh, that form a pattern, and eventually these link back into that unison bass riff and chords from the previous control Z. So it's sort of like uh, bookended by that you know unison uh, kind of bass figure. So it sort of completes the statement uh, from that first one. Track seven, Deliberado. And this one I'm going to bring in another guest, Felipe Aravena on guitar. It's a slow 6-8 groove, and Aravena joins in together with uh, Aliaga on the melody. There are uh, nice counter lines doubled in the bass and left hand of the piano over the middle section of the tune. Uh, Aravena gets a solo, very fluid lines and a dark, ghosty kind of tone on guitar. His phrasing is interesting. It's smooth, but with clearly articulated notes. The groove changes up to a heavier kind of swinging 6-8 for Aliaga's piano solo that has chiming chords, nice little hesitation before some figures. Then Aravena joins back in for some improvisations, working around the piano back into the middle section of the melody with bass counterlines. Uh, they take it out on the final section, slowing it down for a nice effect. Track eight, Alzar, and here just piano and... Uh, Kevin Carvajal on sax, uh, soprano sax, joining in here. It's a rhythmic and happy piano and sax right away jumps in with this uh, kind of boisterous melody. There's a little pause into a reset for the piano, and then sax gets back in again, working through the many different sections uh, of the melody uh, with some gaps for Aliaga on piano. Uh, they take turns soloing over sections, and then uh, Carvajal gets some extended soloing 
which he works back into the melody uh, together with the piano eventually. Uh, there's a new bouncy rhythmic section after uh, five and a half minutes that develops uh, for some more sax soloing, and it ends suddenly, leaving you expecting a final note, but you don't get it. And the recording ends with the final piece, control plus X uh, yeah. key combination there. Uh, a fade-in on some ringing low piano dissonance and bass figures. Uh, Aliaga stretches out a piano theme with pauses between phrases. Uh, Espinosa adds some responses on bass. And uh, Jaramillo adds stirring textures on drums. Some sustained atonal piano notes make a new atmosphere for a while. Uh, and then bass has some commentary. Aliaga stabs with some muted but ringing piano notes. Things get spacey with some rumblings on bass and some percussion scratching around. Aliaga then brings back in the theme idea and it gels with the bass uh, for some uh, kind of uh, unified motion to the end. So uh, this is an adventurous mix of different <laughs> things for a debut recording, especially in the freeform uh, control pieces. The guests add even more variety to the trio. I like the mix of rhythmic feels and grooves. Uh, there's a general sense of space and uh, relaxedness in Aliaga's playing that's nice. And I liked the subtle little different touches of the organ and uh, other keyboard uh, electric sounds too. Kind of adventurous for a debut recording, but uh, it's interesting. Right. Yeah, I, I kind of found this album to be sort of a mixed bag. Mm. I, I felt like the, the three experimental tracks, the Control yeah. Plus XYZ ones, kind of broke the mood of the other compositions mm. which were all pretty mellow and enjoyable really yeah. um and odd it's, it was an odd way to end the album on an experimental <laughs> track I mean, you left you sort of left in the middle of the universe somewhere with no way home right <laughs> anyway the piano playing throughout this album was really characterful mm. i liked it and uh most of it's on the mellow side but uh quite a few changes of character throughout um i think of this is, is you said this was his first album yeah this is a debut yeah yeah, it kind of feels like a calling card album, you know, like this is what I can do right. sort of thing. So, you know, you know, you've got this and then I can do all these weird experimental things too. Um, so, you yeah. know, good for him for that. I mean, we talked about this with uh, Jasmine Horn's first album too. But I get the and, feeling uh, like if you had a, mm. if you got it signed on a big record label that uh, the producer would not let you do this kind of program. Well, not these no. days, right? Yeah. I think in the, the 1960s when, when expand, you know, anything you did was okay, yeah. you know. We're really in a different age now, although you never know. We could be moving back to that. Could be. But, you know, when you have yeah, something like this, yeah. a self-release, you know, can end up with more interesting and daring kind of things, you know, right out of the gate. I think it's good to have daring yeah. things on your first album. You know, it's kind of, yeah. you know, to kind of show us like, hey, you know, I can, <laughs> I can step out of the box. So know? I think he shows a nice sense of adventure here. And even with the free pieces, like I said, uh, they are tied around some kind of structure and uh, right. you know, gives you something to uh, latch onto there. And very interesting. And uh, our first uh, album from Chile. So, yeah, I want to hear what's going on around Actually, the world. No, I don't think, well, it depends if you count like Melissa Aldana. She's Chilean. Oh, that's too, right. But she's in New York now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did. So, we did right. that one. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I want to get some more, um, you know, South American jazz artists into the mix from time to time. So, keeping things as international yeah. as possible. Yeah. Well, our trip to, uh, 
the Iberian Peninsula and the uh, Latin America was it was pretty brief. You know, we kind of think we're just hitting an a, a two at the two hour mark right about now. Yeah. Not a bad thing, really. I don't know. I feel yeah. like you know. Anyway, it was uh, interesting. Anyway. Be sure to check out all of these recordings. I think you'll uh, be. Most mm. of the music is uh, uplifting, rhythmic. And uh, yeah. a lot of good melodies in here too, both in classical and jazz. Yeah, a lot of um, new music to discover this week. Yeah. Uh, certainly for me. Next week we're gonna our uh, trip around the world is kind of coming to yes. an end. We're just gonna do something rather ordinary, right? Well, I'm gonna go with the heavy hitters next week. What the American heavy hitters. There, and what I've tried to do is uh, find lots of new artists and go international um, a lot of the time. But there's mm. just some really big things that uh, from the U.S. in jazz that have uh, come out, and mm. uh, we got to get. We got to. One of them is we both know about, and uh, uh, it's it's time yeah. to get to that. And then there's a couple other things too. So I think we're. Well, our next stop is Italy again in a, in a couple of weeks, right? I think we're going to go back to Italy, yeah. of course. Right? We have a we have a load of Italian music, right. both in classical and jazz. And I want to say I have a whole like American programs worth of um, American classical music too, but I don't want to do it yet because of the uh, I want to do the William Bolcom uh, album by you know, right. Marc Andre Amlan, which I really love, but um, it's the complete piano rags of William Bolcom and um, you know, this is our last week of uh, classes. I just want to wait till that's yeah. over, so I could because I I don't think I can listen to a, like an entire two CD set of piano rags in a single day. <laughs> yeah, I think it's got to break that up, piece them out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's great playing and they're great performances, but they're a little too much of the same thing to listen to like all the way yeah. through at one sitting. You know, so I think I want to break that one up. And I'm not sure I can do that this week. If I have like a symphony to listen to, I can just do that right. sitting down one time. So I think I'm going to, I have some odds and ends I'm going to tie up next week. Right. We have a new Renitsky recording that we haven't talked That's about. Right. It was out for a few months now. Mm. The first one without our friend uh, Daniel Bernardson's uh, direct involvement in too, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. See what they do. It's time to hear some new Ronitsky too, and uh, catch up mm -hmm. on some uh, other things as the summer goes on. I have a feeling that, uh, as usual, the new releases will, they're already starting to to trickle down, <laughs> taper off a bit. Yeah. So uh, that's okay. I got a backlog. Yeah. I don't really. <laughs> I'm not gonna have a problem filling out the summer. Also, we have. Um, the, uh, the Gramophone Awards are going to come up soon, and they're already talking about gramophones like Orchestra of the Year, so I've been kind of listening to mm. some of those recent recordings, and they're pretty spectacular. Great recordings. Okay. Yeah. There's the, um, I'll, I'll name the uh, Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, conducted by uh, Manfred Honeck. Um, they, they recently put out a Beethoven Symphony 6 album that's uh, got a, an absolutely terrifying fourth storm movement. Oh. <laughs> so... Mm. Sounds good. Yeah, you could give that a listen. It's it's not a not a apparently I haven't heard the whole thing yet. Just I heard like the uh, highlights, but um, it's apparently not a recording for purists. Oh, okay. <laughs> huh. Sounds interesting. I'm not. I, I'm. I'm. I think I'm more of a purist than not. But I can. I can step out of the box there. It's just that I just want to have that recording somewhere of the the purest version of the work that I can go back to and then I'll listen to anything. Yeah. And I mean, why keep recording all these things if you're not going to try something yeah, no, right. a little like, bit different? Yeah. Right? I, think, I think the point is with music like that, too, you don't want to get too far away from, you know, you know if, if someone does this really weird adventurous interpretation, then somebody else tries to outdo oh, yeah, that, then, then pretty you, soon you're just out. You get out of control. You know, yeah. you're just so far away from right. the tradition that you don't really, that's the thing. I, I don't want to, I don't like seeing that yeah. happen, but. 
I'm happy to hear just oddball performances yeah. and stuff like that. All right. Well, yeah. I think, yeah, August might be a month to uh, look back on some things we just haven't gotten to yet. And uh, oh, there's plenty. There's plenty of good stuff, too. Yeah. It's like, um, anyway, check your, uh, after you hear this episode, uh, in the same day that uh, list for next week will be up on Deezer and Facebook. Uh, so if you haven't checked us out there, do that. You can start listening to the music as we are during the week and uh, get to episode 73 next week. And I think before next episode, we're going to hit uh, 10,000 downloads. Oh, really? Yeah. This week, I, huh? I believe so. I believe before the next then we'll episode. We'll get a certificate for that. We'll have to put that up on the Facebook site. Yeah. So thanks to yeah. all the listeners who keep listening to us and uh that's I think, just the start i think that's our last certificate i don't think podbean gives you anything probably not that. no well, maybe money well, we'll see how it goes <laughs> that would <Yeah>. be cool <laughs> <laughs> so until next week uh please keep listening thanks as always to fast signs of staten island for our glowing neon logo and come check us out on uh, facebook if you haven't yet uh, drop us a message uh, get in touch by email and we'll have that new listening list up tomorrow. And then we'll see you again next week for episode 73.